And we're back for another part train. Guess what? Shocker. Our guy, Serm, had another, quote, work event he couldn't get out of. Just Strat and Ev. (laughs) I mean, at this point, we got to just start showing up to the, quote, unquote, work events because it's getting tough to watch. Do you think there's actually work events? I would love to to dig a little deeper. I, you know what I'd love to do on that? I'd love to analyze the data, oh. which feels like a pretty good segue into the guest we have for today. You want to go ahead and give him a rundown? <laughs> well, uh, that was called Seamless. You've clearly yeah. been doing this for a while. Yeah. Uh, this guy, Barney Adams, okay? You might know Adams Golf. Heard uh, of it. The creator of Tight Lies, the most popular fairway ever, as well as Transform the Hybrid. I got to say, the guy's a damn genius, okay? He is a huge numbers guy. He talks a lot about the data he ran, but we don't get nitty-gritty in the numbers. Don't worry. This is a jam-packed episode full of quotes, funny nuggets. The guy's a character, okay? He is also the author of The Wow Factor. It's on Amazon. Um, the outfit that our man Barney has on the cover of his book, also um, top-notch. And um, now, at 80 years young, he is starting a new golf company called Breakthrough Golf Technology. And uh, it's a little product called the Stability Shaft. It's the fastest growing putter shaft on all global tours. Because guess what, Strat? I don't know if you've heard, but every piece of technology in the putter had changed for over the last 60 years, except for the shaft. Not anymore. Yeah, you're going to want to buckle the fuck up because uh, the game has changed. Barney analyzed the data and he's, you know, at 80 years young, he showed up back to work. Didn't need to. Living a comfortable life in Indian Wells, golfing every day with his friends. Didn't need to get back into the industry, but the fire still burns hot and heavy for this guy. And uh, he couldn't ignore the science. He couldn't ignore the numbers. And he's... He's, he was a great guest. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Barney. Now, we should point out, I think it's easy to assume that if a former founder of one of the biggest golf brands we know today and the founder of a new golf company for a putter shaft, it all sounds very technical. It all sounds very golfy. It all sounds nerdy almost. But I, I would actually beg to differ. The episode turned out a lot differently than you would expect. This is an 80-year-old man that has an unbelievable amount of stories about business, not knowing what the hell you're doing and figuring out as you go. His business, what did he say? One million in sales to 100 million in sales in a year? In a year. (laughs) He talks about that. I mean, the guy has so many good stories just about trying to make it in life and, and doing what you're passionate about. I think everyone could benefit from this interview yeah he's a golf guy and he decided to go make a golf company that was wildly successful so i don't know how you don't want to listen to that and also in case this didn't sell you enough to listen to the end i'll leave you with this he said quote it is impossible what was that word impossible impossible to not put better he said it i was there (laughs) thousands of tests a lot of data and oh we didn't even mention strat and i because we're influencers we got the shaft in our putters. Yeah. And we've so. been using it for about a month. And it's true. Strat already had a great stroke. Okay. Strat loves when we're playing golf, just so you guys know. And I say, oh, good stroke. He always yeah. smiles back. He loves it. Yeah. So yeah. the guy already had a good stroke. And this guy is burying putts from everywhere. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's stable. I don't I don't know what else to say. The thing works. Well, I think we've hyped it enough. Why don't we just kick it over to our man Barnacle? <laughs> and we're back for another part train with the one and only Barney Adams. Barney, we gave you an illustrious intro and we'd like to officially welcome you to the show. How you doing? Good. You you did that intro just the way I wrote it. I was very proud of you guys. <laughs> you know, you're checks the in first the, checks in the mail. You're checks the, the first mail. person to send us the intro. I got to say, I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, it's been. It's, I've used it a lot over the years. I'm, I'm getting used to it. <laughs> well, you got a lot of years under your belt. You know, there's a lot of wisdom <laughs> to share today. I don't know about the wisdom, but the years are definitely there. There's no question. <laughs> well, in addition to the years. We like to start our guests off with something fun just to warm you up. So we got to start with this. I've been dying to ask you this all day, okay? You are the inventor of Tight Lies, arguably the most popular fairway wood of all time. Strat and I have talked a lot about this and debated it. So we want you to try and give us an example of something in life. It could be anything that produces a better feeling than puring a three wood. Wait. You're talking peering. I assume you're talking about uh, a solid hit, a center hit. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you know, the funny thing is that, I, and I've used this a lot. <clears throat> if I talk to people about golf, you know, and I'm, I might be doing a little research, but I'm getting there in a you know circumtuitous way. I'll say, "What was the most solid shot you hit the last time you played?" And there's always an answer. People people relate to that now. That may not seem like a big deal, but from my perspective, what that tells me is that if I can influence the design of golf clubs, or at least in the old days, if I could influence the design of golf day clubs to produce more solid shots, that's what golfers like. And that was always my philosophy. So I, 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 I maybe that, uh, uh, yeah, the, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that, that three footer, for the win that goes in that if it doesn't i'll i'll be thinking about it for a month but when it goes in it's like it's it's a no-brainer so yeah making that three footer or three and a half footer when i have to you know barney that was kind of a trick question because i gotta tell you i don't think there's anything in life better than hitting a three wood solid <laughs> no I, I like i say i i use that as a uh um a guide for for making golf clubs that was always my 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 influence. I love that. And in doing some of the research we did uh, before the interview, Barney, we realized and we found out that you're a big uh, fly fisherman. Um, and I know a lot of uh, a lot of golf friends that I have. A lot of my dad's golf buddies are also big fly fishermen. It seems to kind of go hand in hand. What do you think it is about fishing, or, you know, be it fly fishing or just you know regular fishing in general? What is it that kind of speaks to the golfing mind and attracts so many of those uh, similar personalities? Golf's a solitary sport. I mean, e even if you're playing in a foursome or even if it's a two-man game or so on, it's still you against the, the shot or you against the conditions, however you want to say it. And fishing is very similar to that. Fishing is a solitary, uh, solitary experience. So I, I, would, I would certainly compare those two things. Yeah, and we're going to get into your career a little bit, but before I was curious, cause you've obviously been in the industry for a long time. And I, I think a lot of people talk about 
uh, the golf industry and people that are in it seem to be in it almost their whole career and, and never venture out. You started in different types of industries and then got into it later. What do you think the golf industry does that other industries can learn from? And on the flip side, what does the golf industry need to learn most from other industries? Golf, it's a game of passion. And it's the ultimate chance to work at something that you love. And in my experience and talking to guys over the years and so on, people involved with the industry, uh, that kind of works its way to the surface. You, it's, they're working in a, in a passion, so to speak. They, you know, I won't say they, they wouldn't do it for nothing, but they, it, it's that kind of feeling that they have. And as far as, as comparing it to other industries, that, that's a hard thing to do because, as I said before, it isn't a, uh, frankly, it isn't an industry of great financial success. Um, the number of companies that have tried and, and not made it in the golf industry are legion. I did a, a, an analysis one time. <clears throat> if you take the PGA show, which is kind of like the I have arrived, so to speak. I'm going to the PGA show. I'm going to show my products at the PGA show. That means I'm ready to get into the into the big-time game. I'm ready to sell nationally or internationally or so on. Well, I took a 10-year period of my attendance or our attendance at the PGA show and counted 129 companies that exhibited at the PGA show that are no longer in business. Jeez. So... Wow. <laughs> It's it's more like uh, rather than golf teaching other people, other people that could teach people in the golf industry is don't let your passion blind you to reality. Mm. Yeah. So speaking about that passion, because it definitely seems, I mean, you know, you talk to anyone who's on the course and obviously the passion is alive. You know, you got guys showing up at the crack of dawn to try to get out there, slog away for five hours. You kind of came to the golf industry in a in a bit of a different way where, you know, you started as an engineer at a glass company. You were then doing sales in the supermarket industry, then a microprocessor company. But then you linked up with Dave Pels in 83. What kind of, what caused that? How did you guys meet? And what kind of, you know, sparked in you this idea to want to shift industries into something that, you know, you said yourself can be uh, pretty volatile? Yeah, I mean, in the first place, it was always there. Um, I can... Remember back to one of my one of my first official jobs in the golf business. Uh, I was cleaning clubs at a golf course, and I always remembered that uh, the long irons never needed much cleaning. They were always, you know, I could pretty much leave those alone. It was the other clubs that needed cleaning, <laughs> and you know, stuff like that stuck with me. I know that's weird, but stuff yeah. like that stuck with me. Hmm. You know, why were people paying money for these things and and, and not using them? And then I can remember in my college days, um, one of the guys had a brand new uh, Spalding driver. It was beautiful. It was just, you know, we all were looking at it and so on, and he'd only let a couple of us hit it, you know, not to put any marks on it and so on. It hit terrible. I mean, it, was, it, was, it, it just was awful. And that also stuck with me because, you know, that, that told me that there were things going on that – that I didn't really understand, but had an effect on the game. And I, w I was always a, a nutcase for the game. I mean, in my caddy days and, and like I say, working on the golf course. So uh, a, a mutual friend introduced me to Dave Pels, and his comment was, 
you two guys are a couple of wackos. You ought to get to know each other. <laughs> and that's that's how it got started. And that was, you know, in the, uh, well, it actually went back to the late 60s. But oh, wow. Officially, then later on. So, we, you know, I, my time in the business goes back 40-something years. Wow. It kind of speaks to that passion. Did the two of you just kind of realize and see in each other, you know, this is a guy who uh, who clearly has the same kind of obsession and passion that I do? Because, you know, I think what I'm gathering is in addition to that passion, there is this kind of, you know, very singular and intense focus. Like you said, if you're picking up on things from cleaning clubs, noticing that the long irons are clean, you know, was there this kind of recognition that these were a couple of guys that were viewing the the game and the industry a little bit different? Well, I think uh, in my case, I can't speak for Dave, but of course, uh, we were only there together a very short period of time. But in my training, so to speak, my my technical training, you paid attention to things that were true cause and effect. You 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 try to get rid of the the emotional factors, so to speak, or the, the the wants, so to speak and concentrate on things that really made a difference, like I say, cause and effect things. And as it turned out, the observation of the long irons was one of those. Uh, Although I didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but when I look back on it, uh, there was a significant fact. It's a way of approaching. I know when I was a club fitter, uh, kind of getting ahead of the game, I guess, a little bit, but when I was was fitting clubs back around 1990 when, when really nobody was doing it. And I wasn't fitting clubs particularly on some altruistic journey. Uh, I had a, a set of clubs that I designed that I couldn't give away. I uh, didn't, didn't know how to market them, except I didn't have any money. And I found out that by selling the service of custom fitting, I was able to sell a product. And that was a big hmm. deal with me because my philosophy was that you're always selling a service you're not just selling a product and that affected the way i design clubs and the way that i you know conducted business over the years yeah and so when you were with dave pels pels was about to go bankrupt right and you approached him and you you offered to buy him out to start adams golf can you no it wasn't no i'm sorry but that's not the case so dave was he was financed by some guys uh this was <laughs> I made the trip. This is an interesting story. I was working in the Silicon Valley uh, in the high-tech industry, as you guys said. And I had known Dave from before, and I got a call, and he was operating out of Abilene, Texas. And he said, hey, we really need you to come down. We're struggling, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in my mind, this was my chance to, you know, fulfill my passion, so to speak. And I was not married at the time, so it was just a singular decision. So I left the Silicon Valley. Uh, I worked right off at 3000 Sand Hill Road, which is right in the middle of the Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and I went to Abilene, Texas, where there were three colleges, none of which allowed dancing. So <laughs> it would be good that you're passionate about what you're doing. <laughs> when, <laughs> when, you get a, when you get a change like that. And that's exactly the way it was. I lived in the uh, Best Western Motel. And I had the deluxe room, and the deluxe room meant that it had a barca lounger in it, so I had a place to sit. And I worked them for a weekly rate, and I don't know what it was, but it wasn't very much money. And uh, and it was right next door to a cafeteria where I could get my meals. 
And I loved it. I mean, it was a chance to be in the business. Unfortunately, Dave's backers were in the oil industry, and about six months after I got there, they crashed. Uh, and that was that was the way of the oil industry in those days. You know, it was feast and famine. It was it was feast for quite a while. Then all of a sudden, and I, here again, and in, in a spate of irony, I can remember because I liked the guys a lot. They were nice guys, and I remember just talking to them one day, and I said, "Hey, you guys ever think about you know maybe buying a building or something? You know, just diversifying was my pitch a little bit from the oil industry." And they said, oh, come on, it's, come on this thing is only going to go up, you know, that's crazy, blah, blah, blah. And then within six or seven months, they were, they were bust. And when they went bust, Bell's Golf went bust. And then Dave left to do the short game schools, and uh, I decided to start up by myself. I had no money. You see the internet. In fact, I'll tell you guys. I'll, I'll tell you another story if go you allow me. Of course, <laughs> to of use course. up all your time. No, go ahead. Uh, my first day, um, I had. I'm jumping in time a little bit here because we did, we had a, we had a project where we were making some stuff for uh, that was going to be sold and no advertising, no marketing, just manufacture and sell. And we put the money in the bank because I knew I needed money to you know get in the business full time. And I'd actually retreated back to the uh, Silicon Valley to, and to work for a while because again I knew I needed funding to. to follow my dream so to speak now i go by i go back to abilene because i just figured it was time the heck with it if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it and i go in the office well it wasn't an office it was an, an abandoned building that we lived in it was you know not very fancy and to start up to be in the business and i can remember how excited i was no i was almost 50 years old then. I wasn't a kid, but I had this passion. I just, it was just such a big deal. And I knew we had money in the bank so we could, you know, get started and get rolling, so to speak. So I go in and I get there like at six in the morning. I'm the only person there. And I'm looking through a desk to find some place where I can sit. Because when we rented the building, there was a bunch of old desks that kind of came with the territory. And I pick out this desk and I open the drawer and I'm basically looking for critters to tell you the truth because this building was in a field and critters <laughs> would come in from the cold and stuff and stay in our building. So I open the drawer and it's full of paper. And I think, you know, what's this? There's not supposed to be any paper here. So I get the paper and I'm going to throw it away. And I happen to look at the top document, so to speak, and it was a demand notice. Well, what had happened is the people who had run the business in my absence had spent all the money, and instead of having money in the bank to start the business, I owed six figures. Oh, my God. And then those are my first five minutes on the job. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, I guess, and I guess my point is, you better have a passion. <laughs> because to overcome something like that, either that or you're nuts. And, and, and there's, and, and, I actually wrote a book about it, and in the book I use the line that there's a very fine line between insanity and entrepreneurism, mm. and th- there's a case in point. Is that the that wow factor? Like... Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. wow factor. It's yeah. on Amazon, folks. And also, Barney, I appreciate you clarifying that context because you know the internet 
as a research tool, even though it's very useful and fast, it doesn't always provide us that context. So that that's very helpful. Uh, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned that that razor's edge between uh, what what was it, entrepreneurship and, and passion, um, and, and insanity. <laughs> and insanity, exactly. What do you, uh, given that you know you have this background in in engineering, what do you think kind of is the difference between being a good entrepreneur and a good engineer? Well, I don't think you can separate the two necessarily. I think you, uh, I, I, engineers, um, and I'm not a real engineer. I just worked in the field for several years. You know, they, the ones that I work with, they're really good. They're never finished. The, you know, <laughs> they can always make the product a little bit better. And there just comes a day when you have to fish and cut bait or cut bait. And you say, guys, I'm sorry, but we're going to market with this the way it is. We can we can keep working on it, but we just, you know, we can't sit around and and, and redesign for the rest of our day. So that's a fairly common um, fallacy, if you want to call it, that I've seen over the years. And so it's it's you, you've got to have good product and you don't you don't go out with junk. But there comes a time when you just got to, you know. Go out there and, and you know take your beating, so to speak. So Barney, we said this in the first question. Um, I want to go back to it for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. You invented the tight lies fairway wood that changed the trajectory of Adams Golf, right? Um, mm-hmm. It seems like every company almost needs to knock it out of the park with at least one product to make it work. Yeah, right? you like, look at the history. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll let me. Uh, you're absolutely. It's a good observation. First place. To give you an idea of what the golf industry is like, the four leading companies today, Callaway, Titleist, TaylorMade, and Ping, were the four leading companies 35 years ago. This is something that people do not understand about the golf business. It is not a product business. It's a marketing business. Mm -hmm. I have guys contact me over the years. You know, I've got this great idea for a set of clubs, for a driver, wedge, putter, blah, 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 whatever it is. And I tell them all the same thing. I said, guys, that isn't the issue. The issue is that you've, you've got to market your, see, golf clubs are not sold. Golf clubs are bought. Mm. And that's a significant difference. That means you've got to incent a buyer. And in this case, statistically speaking, it's a 52-year-old white male, pure data, sure. to get <laughs> off his chair, turn off the TV, and go buy something. Well, you do that by, A, having your product played on tour because that validates it, and then, B, running advertising to tell the guy why how it's so good and how much it's going to help him. And, and basically, in the golf industry, it's how he's going to hit the ball longer because distance sells golf clubs 1 through 9.9 and everything else you can have. Now, that's big money. If you don't have 20, 25 million bucks ready to do that, you're going to get killed. And that's why it's the same four companies because that's what they do. And they do it very well. They're very professional and you're going to go up against them. Mm -hmm. So then in, yeah, in that, in the, in that vein of marketing, I I mean, I remember so distinctly being on the golf course with my dad when I was a kid, he pulls out the tight lies and he tells me, he's got this look in his eye and he gives it to me. He's like, Hey, why don't you hit this? This is unlike anything you've ever hit before. And I remember hitting it and it was, it was crazy. I'd never hit anything like that. So knowing that you had to piece together the performance and the pure data 
with something that's going to actually help sell the club. How did you come up going? How did you come about getting with the Tight Lies name? Was there any other well, names that you were exploring? Uh, yeah, in the yeah, to explain this properly, I'll have to uh, expose some of my natural brilliance. So uh, you'll have to bear with me here, because the first thing I thought about doing was changing the name. I just uh, somehow I had regrets over the name Tight Lies until one of my friends said. Barney, you jerk. That's one of the best names for a golf club I've ever heard. <laughs> and with that piece of advice, I didn't change the name. So that's that's number one. Sure. Uh, number two, um, I was a custom fitter, as I said. The tight lies originated so I could have a golf club that was better for my customers because my customers were struggling hitting the long second shot off the ground. Mm. I looked at my clubs, the things that I had designed to help that environment, and mine weren't very good. So I went to the local golf store and researched what I could find with everybody else, and their stuff wasn't very good either. Because basically in those days, you made drivers, and then your fairway woods were kind of like mini drivers. And now speaking from a technical background, that doesn't work. You've got to understand that with a driver, you've got an environment called ball on tee. But with the fairway wood, you've got an environment called ball on ground, mm-hmm. and they aren't the same. They don't. There has to be different uh, physical makeups in your product to optimize performance. So, in my mind, however nice the driver looked, had nothing to do with the fairway wood. I wanted to make a fairway wood that was designed specifically for ball on ground, specifically for tight lies, close lies and for people that didn't have a million miles an hour club head speed, mm-hmm. because those were the majority of my customers. The design came after, you know, kind of messing around with us mentally for, I don't know, months. <clears throat> and then one night, instead of going home, I went back to this little tiny shop that we had, and I sketched out, which in my mind was the, the shape I wanted the club to be. I, I knew of a manufacturing source in Taiwan. I sent them a, a late night uh, fax, said, can you make some of these? They made them. Heads came back, shafted them up. People liked them. And again, identifying my brilliance, I thought it was over. I had done my <laughs> job. I had better custom fitting club. Life goes on. Well, except that, fortunately, it didn't happen that way. Because we would get a phone call. Hey, you guys make that tight fairway thing, whatever it is. <laughs> I played with Jones the other day, and he can't hit it that good. I got to get me one of those. <laughs> and on and on and on. And it kind of take, it started taking a life of its own. So we hired some people and, uh, and over the phone attempted to sell them into the retail market. And one day I answered the phone, and this guy, I said, uh, uh, you're at golf. And I said, yeah. He said, uh, what's your address? I want to send these tight lies back. And I said, well, why? He says, well, you don't advertise. You, you know, you don't, you don't incent anybody to come into my store and ask for them. You know, you're not doing your job. <laughs> and he sent them back and I got another lesson. <laughs> so now I had to figure out how to, uh, you know, accomplish that <clears throat> marketing objective. One of my customers uh, was in the infomercial business. I had never heard of an infomercial. I didn't know what it was. 
And he said, Barney, your product is perfect for an infomercial. And I looked into it and kind of figured, well, you know, I get it. It's a visual product, and uh, uh, there's an opportunity here. I got nothing else going, <laughs> you know, so let's take a shot at it. So I won't bore you with all the details, but it came down to the fact that we needed to raise uh, $250,000 to uh, su- successfully produce and test market an infomercial. And I had some uh, some guys that had made some investment in the company, so there was you know, a little bit, you know, the potential was there. Called a meeting, said, here's the deal. I need 250 I don't have any money, so here's what I'll do. I'll give you guys the company, everything. If we're successful, I want to earn back this percentage. If we're not successful, that's all yours, and I'm out of here. And they said, geez, are you that serious? And I said, yeah, I am. You know, we, this goes back to this kind of the story we're talking about, about entrepreneurism, say, versus working for a corporation. You don't get situations like this in a corporation. Yeah. In entrepreneurism, uh, you've got to be ready to, uh, <laughs> to lay it on the line. And so I did. I just they said, "Oh, if you're willing to do it, we'll raise the money." They raised the money. We ran the show, and it again the short version. It became the most successful golf infomercial in history, and <laughs> changed everything. And then, and then, what it really did, and what we were trying to do, we were trying to get into retail. And what I had learned from talking to the infomercial people is, they said, "Well, for a product like yours." 85% of the <clears throat> sales will occur at retail because people will see it and they won't necessarily buy it over TV, but they will go into a store or if they're in a store, they'll look for it and so on. <clears throat> and all of a sudden we developed a retail market and our sales went from roughly, oh, I don't know, million and a half, two million or something like that. I forget what they were to a little over a hundred million Jesus. in about a year and a half. Oh, unbelievable. Okay. Wow. And I will tell you something, you cannot manage that. That's insanity. How, that is. How did you manage it? <laughs> well, I didn't sleep for about eight months. That was part of it. <laughs> uh, you, just, you do the best you can. I mean, you've you got you to you learn to focus on the things that are really significant and just do away with the noise. And you've got to get people that can, can uh, survive in an environment like that. And, and that's another lesson. Because you work at a corporation, let's say you're a salesman, I'll make it easy comparison. You're, you're in a corporation and you call on somebody and you work for XYZ, you know, fairly well-known corporation. You have a certain amount of credibility and you're going to be treated with a certain degree of respect. You go out there from a little nobody company like we were, with nobody knew who we were and, you know, so on and so forth. And you make an appointment to see somebody and you go there and the guy doesn't show up. <laughs> or if he does show up, he just kind of treats you like, you know, hey, tell me what you got. I got something else to do. Well, there's the, the rejection factor can be significant. Yeah. Hmm. And people who are comfortable, have been made comfortable in the corporate environment, cannot handle that rejection factor. It's debilitating. Trust me, I've had, a, I've had people break down in tears more than one time. And it, not just the, <clears throat> not just the, uh, say the sales guys, but even internally, because the pressure is horrific. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we've got to do stuff that's five times greater than we've ever experienced before. 
and I don't know what to do, and, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And it's a tough gig. What can I tell you? It's, it's uh, you know, you, you, fortunately, you find people that can, uh, you know, that have your back and can work through it. So, Barney, you're, you're 80 years young. You're fly fishing. You've got all this success and experience. Why go back? Into the industry. Remember what, I, remember what I told you? There's a fine line between entrepreneurism <laughs> and insanity. <laughs> it hasn't uh, changed. <laughs> it is. Just, I'm sorry, but that's it. That's just the. Why would I go back? Yeah. You know, wow. why would I mean? Listen, I was from. I, I don't mean to self self-aggrandizing, but you know, I was successful. I had that reputation. Why wouldn't I just rest on that reputation instead of just, you know, showing people how dumb I really am and then taking another flyer? What can I tell you? Hey, you know what you got? And you got to flaunt it. And, you know, you decided to switch things up, which brings me to my next question, which is, what was it about? So, like you said, you know, you kind of had these moments where you realized that the long irons weren't getting hit. So you decided to make a club that dealt better with, you know, ball on ground. What was it about? putting that uh that kind of you know piqued your interest and you know uh triggered that uh insanity or genius button and forced you to get back into it and try to develop something that could change this game the the putting game as well it's a technically superior product Mm. it's not a marketing product it's not a lot of bs um and i've made the comment before that a lot of the quote technology that we see uh with new products uh, comes from the marketing department, not from the engineering department. Golf's a game of marketing. The putter shaft, it was is technically superior. You will putt better with it, and that's based on tens of thousands of data points that I had uh, investigated by a third party just to make sure that you know I wasn't reading what I wanted to read and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And just the opportunity to bring a technically superior product to the marketplace uh, was a challenge. And I knew, and boy, was I right. (laughs) It was going to be tough. (laughs) Do you think it was tougher with putting than with fairway woods? Because putting is still such a, such a tougher for this reason and golf and golf. If you have a visible technology, your chances of success are much greater. Mm -hmm. And the tight lies was a visible technology. You saw it, you knew what it was there for, you recognized it, et cetera. The putter shaft, yeah, it looks different, but that's all it does. It looks different. You can't tell really what it does. And it isn't the kind of thing where you're going to go out and just start making everything. You know, that would be a lie. Right. You will putt better. The data shows that you will putt better. And, uh, you know, you just the, the situation that I run into over and over again is, Somebody will try it, somebody I know, and they're like, well, what the heck, I've tried everything else, I'll try this, you know, blah, blah. And you'll see them, uh, say, a week or so later, and, yeah, I guess it's better, I, I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> then you see them, like, a month later, and it's like, you couldn't pay me to give this up, I love this shaft, <laughs> I'm putting better, my confidence is better, and so on, and that's that's exactly the way it is, it is... It, it grows on you because it, it your ball your ball speed is better, and as you guys know, nothing helps the game of golf. You know, you talked about early on. You talked about the solid shot. 
uh, I would use the confidence word. Anything that you can do that increases your confidence makes the game a hell of a lot more fun. Mm. I would, I'd agree. Well, I'd agree. I love to hear you saying that it just gets better and better because Strat and I both have it. And we've had it, what, about a month, Strat? We're yeah. about to approach yeah. a month? Yep. And I admit, Barney, you know, it's true. Like, you got to get used to the, for, for, um, uh, for distance control, you got to get used to it. It's a little bit heavier, obviously more stable. Um, but how did you, it, I mean, it says, we, I mean, we should have said that your new company is called Breakthrough Golf Technology, and it's the product's the stability shaft. And it says 90% of golfers who play stability say it has more solid feel than their putter, which we can attest to, 100% true. Um, we've been playing it for about a month. Where, what was the day? Like, take us through the day. What happened? Was there a moment? How did you decide to do this? Just the verification of the data. That was it for me. That uh, once the data was, was uh, uh, sent to a third party and they, you know, he got back with us and said the numbers are exactly as you guys predicted that they are. Uh, you know, how can I walk away from it? It's better. Jerk, you're, you're, you're 80 years old. You're living in Indian Wells, California, where you get to play golf with your friends. You know, why would you take something like this on? And I get, I go back to the same answer. It's a superior product. I mean, I can't walk away from it. Yeah. So what, what was it? You, you've mentioned the data and that you ran the numbers. You're crunching pure data. What what was it that sparked you to to run the tests? What like was there a moment where you where you thought you know the the shafts we have now are no good? Let me let me see what something that yeah, with a different construction is like. What was it? Yeah, that prompted well, it you actually to do? started. Yeah, it, it it started with you know one of those conversations. <laughs> uh, this guy was uh, um, wanted to start a putter company, <clears throat> and he asked me what I thought. And I said, you're out of your mind. And that was what we wanted to hear. He wanted me to, you know, make, make him feel better. And so sure, on. And I said, sure. here's the data. You're, you know, I said, you ask me. So here's the data. There has never been an independent putter company in the golf industry that hasn't gone broke. Never. Mm. Wow. Now, I'm kind of a data nut i you know i research a lot of stuff because as a little company i had to kind of stay on top of things you know a couple of them maybe got bought out by bigger companies you know and so on and so forth but it's the same story i said before you can't compete against the big guys you know they're just, they're too good and uh they, you know their product is good and their message is stronger so you can't do it you just can't uh uh you know oh boy i got this new hot baloney putter and so on and it's really good it lines up well oh that's good uh, ours lines up well too and we've got 17 guys on tour playing it how you doing you got no chance and that's yeah. what i told the guy yeah and then we got looking at the data because he was showing me the putter and we kind of said well wait a minute <clears throat> this steel shaft stuff there's something wrong there's something in the data was wrong and that's what started the whole research and then we found out that the steel shaft actually oscillates during the stroke slightly and, if, and here's what's happened. <clears throat> if you can visualize the history of putters, or putter heads, I should say, go back to the old blades, the bullseyes, mm -hmm. and then the putters of today. Greens have gotten faster and smoother over the years, mm -hmm. no question. The putting stroke has evolved into a pendulum-style smooth stroke. That's the way it's taught. 
And to augment that, the putter designers, very super competent guys, make these heads with high moments of inertia. So they're bigger and they're heavier. So if you track putters from the original bullseye or the original blaze to today, the putter heads are much heavier. The shafts haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't think of very many things that are in use that are over 60 years old. You know, <laughs> things do have a way of changing for the better. Mm. And the putter shaft was kind of taken for granted. Now, we went back and ran tests using the older, lighter heads and the heavier heads of today, and sure enough, the oscillation increased. You know, you could see it in the ball roll. So we know what's happened over the years. And again, I, I gotta, I'm sorry I have to repeat myself that it isn't, um, you know, night and day, but it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. You know, what's funny about that, Barney, is if you told someone your driver's six years old, They'd be like, oh, shit, I got to get a new driver. This thing's six years old. And in the putter, they got a putter shaft that's 60 years old. And that's arguably the most important part of the game. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah, uh, there's there's no question. I mean, but listen, I qualify. It's golfers. We're all nutcases. True. You just kind of have to hang in there. You never, you never know what'll flip the switch. That's (laughs) the way the golf is. You know, you, you struggle and you fight and you just, you know, try and hang in, and you're frustrated, and nothing's going well, and then all of a sudden, boom! You wake up one day, and something good's happened. Mm. Yeah, whatever. I don't. I give up. I don't know. <laughs> so, so go, go ahead, Strat. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna ask, like Barney. We've talked a lot about data. We've talked a lot about numbers. I gotta ask you: Is putting an art or a science? I think it's. I think it is a. And I said, like when I played basketball, you know, some guys were just great free throw, great free throw shooters or great shooters as far as that goes. Is that science or art? Uh, I believe it's a little bit of each because you have to have, uh, uh, you know, some, some basic fundamentals, but there's also something extra there that's beyond science. Uh, the two best putters that I have seen over my thousand years playing golf did everything wrong. They they would if you watched them you'd laugh, except for the fact that for the money they don't miss. Yep. that's art. You yep. know that's just that's I'm sorry you can't teach that. You would never teach people to to putt the way they putt. It would you'd laugh. So, but the but the irony is that one of them that I know is still playing. I gave him the, the shaft to try, and you know what? He's putting better. Imagine he that. Said, I, I couldn't believe, he said, he, he, he told me when he tried it, he said, I'll do it because I'm your friend, but he said, I'm not going to putt any better. I, as well as I putt, I can't, I'm just not going to putt any better. <laughs> well, guess what? He's putting better. Yep, I believe it. So, what do you do? Yeah, you just keep on trucking. Well, I gotta say, like, uh, like Evan mentioned, we've, we've been playing with it for the last month, and, you know, I, I can attest, it, it is, like you said, it's one of those things, you, you start putting, you think, okay, yeah, it feels a little bit different, then you kind of adapt and you get used to it, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything is just, it's either way closer than you've ever been, your misses are closer, or you're just draining things that you used to be close on, so. Uh, yeah, and that's what happens, yeah. There's yeah. That. I mean, <clears throat> When you see it like like I have seen it with the with the you know extreme uh, data, 
and the uh, if you see the the ball roll results, you know what's going to happen. You know, yeah, it it has to happen. The the, the guy that did our uh, numbers, I asked him. I said, "Can you make this statement that it's impossible not to putt better with this shaft?" He said, "That's true." Oh, <laughs> well, wow. Barney, I gotta oh, say, go. I gotta say, this is a great <laughs> thing to end on because. I was already feeling confident now that I've seen the results. I've seen the science. But listening and talking to you firsthand, I have a feeling my confidence on the greens is going to be at an all-time high this weekend, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Well, listen, you don't have to thank me, but I'll take a, a small percentage of what you win. How's that? <laughs> I mean, we, we can talk off of you know, I mean, fair is fair. What the heck? Yeah, you send us the address. That, 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 that sounds good to me. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Barney. This is this was great. Um, you're welcome on anytime. This was incredibly entertaining. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as well. So if you guys don't have the stability shaft in your putter, why don't you go ahead and just Google it? Stability shaft breakthrough golf technology. And as Barney said, it's impossible for you to not putt better. Thanks so much for coming yeah. on, Barney. You got Thank it, you, Barney. Thank you, guys. And by yes. the way, I, I might add, because our distribution is not very good, that that is the best way to find out about us is just look up break, Breakthrough Golf Tech, and they'll either tell you if there's a distributor locally or they'll deal with you online. Perfect. It, awesome. It's a little frustrating, but that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, you know, you, you build your you build your distrib- distribution network on a daily basis. Of course. Well, they'll come because, like you said, it's a hell of a product, and we're, we're loving it. So thanks for being on, Barney. Okay, we guys. appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Of course. Have a good one.